Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering from God's Word. So these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way back. Just get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you that is marked at 1 Peter chapter 4. As we continue our series in this book of 1 Peter, and now we are down to the final two of the five chapters that comprise the book, and the overall title of the series is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And today, 1 Peter, we begin 1 Peter chapter 4. Over the last couple of years, as our oldest daughter, Lainey, approached high school graduation, she and we as a family faced the question that all families who have upperclassmen face. So what's next? Now what? And the question is not easily answered because the array of choices is daunting. College or a trade school? Might I find a job and go straight into the workplace? And if college or a trade school, will that be at home or will it be away? And what major or trade will I pursue? And then the result of all of these potential choices is a good bit of anxiety for the young person and the family because we live in a culture where there's pressure to map it out at the very beginning have it all figured out as soon as you can but in the rush to figure it out missteps are often made so that for instance statistics say that 75 percent of college students change their major at least once And about half change it twice. But with all the anxiety and stress that can come with all the choices that we have to make, I think I can say with confidence we should all be grateful that we live in a time and a place where we can make such choices for ourselves. And I say that because, you see, in most of the world, for most of history, one's life was mapped out at birth. And in many cases... Places, that's still the case. Economic circumstances dictate that some will never be anywhere but a few miles from their place of birth. And governmental societal requirements of class or caste or guild would determine one's course of life. Where you were born and to whom you were born were the most important factors in determining what you would become. Now, when we were converted to Christ, assuming that you have been converted to Christ, we were born again into circumstances that we did not choose, but which likewise will affect the course of our now new life. Just as when we were born physically and we are immediately in circumstances we did not choose, so also when we're born again spiritually, we find ourselves in a situation we did not choose. Without moving physically, we are immediately relocated to a different country to which we give our ultimate allegiance. And that's why the Bible says, our citizenship is in heaven. At the moment that we are saved, by believing in the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, we become strangers in our own country. Just like that. And that's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, 
Peter who wrote this says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, as, as aliens and, and foreigners. And the Bible teaches that we're not always welcome in the world such that those in the host country are happy to see us. <laughs> Instead, there's tension. Even hostility that sometimes becomes outright persecution. When I was in China at the end of last year, and I'm planning a trip there again next month, but when I was there at the end of last year, I felt that in more than just a a metaphorical way. As I walked from my hotel in Beijing, the 10 minutes to Tiananmen Square, I could see many eyes on me, not least from the street vendors who accost you almost literally physically to sell you stuff. But there were military personnel everywhere and checkpoints at all sorts of different places. At one point, I found myself being followed by two uniformed soldiers. Now, part of my concern was no doubt due to my own paranoia, but there was no doubt that I was being watched closely. And that's something of what it's like for the Christian. You now find yourself in the world, but not of the world. And therefore, you're a curiosity to the world, and as we're going to see, sometimes a threat to the world. Now, why is that? Why the tension and the potential personal conflict and sometimes real interpersonal conflict? Well, because of sin, the Bible speaks of the world in negative terms. As a place, yes, but more important, The Bible speaks of the world as a mindset, a value system that is opposed to God and His ways and therefore to His people. And as a result, now hear this, at the same time you were adopted into God's family, you were also drafted into God's army. And that's why I've titled this message, as you can see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. Please take a look. I've entitled it, Entering a War Zone. Because that's what happens when you come to Jesus. You're converted, you're transported, you you now become an alien, an exile, a foreigner, in somewhat hostile territory. You didn't choose conflict. But once you chose Jesus, now conflict comes to you. I've been asked many times over the years by someone who has just recently come to Christ and they've had the friends that they've had in the past who have done the kinds of things together that they've done in the past and they now have pangs of conscience about that and they ask the question, should I keep my unbelieving friends? And my answer to that is always unequivocal, absolutely, yes. You want to win your friends to Jesus now. But I also add, but don't be surprised if they leave you. You see, it's not that we are being called, as we're going to see in 1 Peter 4, to go after unbelievers, but rather sometimes in church history and sometimes in our own lives, they come after us. And you'll notice as I'm talking, I'm talking about them and I'm talking about us, us and them. Am I right to do that? To use you, us versus them kinds of language? Well, take a look at verses 3 and 4. First Peter 4. Verse 3 starts, or says, You 
have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Now notice, there's you and there's the pagans. There's you and there's them. And then in verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Twice in just that one sentence. There's they and there's you. There's us and there's them. And so the Bible often uses us versus them language because it's the nature of being a Christian. Called out of the world but living in the fallen world. Now, if you're relatively new and all this talk of battle and tension and conflict makes you a bit squeamish, you're not alone. And in fact, you're in good company. The great Apostle Paul, who wrote a number of the books that comprise your New Testament, wrote two of those books to his protege, Timothy. And in the second of those two letters, 2 Timothy, in the very first chapter, he says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And the reason, as you read the contents of the four chapters of 2 Timothy, that Paul sees the need to do that for Timothy is because Timothy was apparently somewhat fearful. As Paul was now passing the mantle of leadership on to his young protege at the end of, of Paul's life, and so he has to kind of buck him up in his, in his courage. And in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, to say to be strong and be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're in good company if that concerns you a bit. But Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So lest you think I'm having a rally for us to all bear arms and go out and take the world for Jesus physically, quite the contrary. In fact, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was arrested before he was crucified, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. So now look at chapter 4 and verse 1 in light of that. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now this phrase, arm yourselves, is one that indeed comes from the military realm, but it's being used metaphorically here. So we're going to see the things we arm ourselves with are not physical armaments. In fact, the passage tells us how we should engage in the war into which we've been conscripted by our captain. And we'll see that those weapons are not physical, but rather spiritual. So let's ask then the Lord to help us as we look at what he tells us about how to be good soldiers for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you each Lord's day and each and every moment of every day in great need of your aid. We ask for your grace. For us to be able to have open minds, to have open hearts and willing hearts to receive what your word tells us. Help us, Lord, to leave here better equipped to serve you and honor you with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I say in the outline that I've already called your attention to, if you'll take a look at that, that here's what this passage is telling us that Christians should be. We should be, first of all, prepared for spiritual battle. 
Christians should be prepared for spiritual battle. Again, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. It starts with therefore. goes back to chapter 3 and verse 18 that says, He died, gave himself the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Back in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we're told of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is all about the environment into which he came to carry out his mission and the hostility that he encountered when he came that resulted in his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion. They, his enemies, thought that they had succeeded in murdering him, but actually it was all part of God's plan to redeem his his people. Christ entered a hostile environment when he came to earth. And hear this now, his treatment 2,000 years ago when he walked the roads of Palestine was not because there were exceptionally bad people at the time. Sometimes we get the idea as we read Scripture, wow, those were really awful people. Well, those were just people. And in Scripture, people are people. Sinful people, all the same. So it was not that he came into a particularly bad time with exceptionally bad people, but rather there was the exceptionally good person that drew out the hatred of the hearts of men and women. What made it so hateful, what made it so vile, was not that people were particularly worse at that time. They weren't. They're just as bad now. They were just as bad before and since. But what made it so so bad was the contrast between the absolute holiness and righteousness of Jesus compared to those with whom he was was dealing. And so Christ is our example, and as you think about it then, and Peter is going to go and say this explicitly, that as you now are holy as your Father is holy, do not be surprised that you have the same kind of vindictiveness and hostility issued toward you. And so verse 1 is teaching us that Christ is our example. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, now you need to be prepared for spiritual body battle. If it happened to him, do not be surprised that then it happens to you. So how do we, in preparing for this, not only see that, yes, this is potential for us, because it happened to our Lord. But how do we actually arm ourselves? And verse 1 tells us that it's Christ-like thinking that is our weapon of warfare. He's our example. This happened to him. And now thinking in the same way and along the same lines that Jesus did is our weapon. Verse 1 says, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And the word that's translated attitude has to do with thought. And in the context, the thought is toward the intention that the world has toward God and toward unbelievers. Dear friends, we need to think like Jesus in that we understand that the world hated him and thus it will hate those who love him. We cannot be naive as it relates to the world and its view of Jesus and Jesus' followers, is what Peter is reminding us of. You know, it's ironic. 
that sometimes because of God's restraining grace upon the sinfulness of men and women, it lulls us to sleep in the way we view the deep and abiding sinfulness of humanity. Because God restrains the effects of sin, and it's not as bad as it could be, only because He restrains it, we therefore think people are better than they really are. And then we are surprised. But we need to remember what Jesus said. In John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And so we who follow Jesus, who have been born again, have been drafted into his army. It's not a conflict that we have chosen. It's not anything that any of us enjoys, but it is the field in which we have been called to serve the Lord as his, his soldiers. And because we are on that field of battle, a battle that we have to enjoin even though we don't initiate, we cannot be naive. Christ is our example. We see that it happened to him. And our weapon then is to think in a way that is the same as Jesus did. Understanding the deep-seated need of humanity for the transformation that God in His grace has given to us. So Christians should be prepared for battle. Seeing Christ as our example. Seeing Christ-like thinking as our primary weapon as we arm ourselves according to verse 1. But then thirdly, seeing Christ-like character as our objective. Again, verse 1, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, what does that have to do with Christ-like character? You see, the reason Jesus suffered in his body is because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And those who, like Jesus, are willing to endure suffering are those who see something higher and nobler. That is, they have the character of Jesus. They pursue righteousness. Righteousness is the right standard. And what is the right standard? It is the holy character of God. And so the last part of verse number 1, when it says whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, it doesn't mean you never sin again. It doesn't mean you've achieved sinless perfection. But it's showing two opposing things, suffering and sin. And to embrace suffering is to cease from sin. To embrace sin is the attempt to cease from suffering. Although it will ultimately bring suffering, as we're going to see in verse number 5, that's precisely why those who are called to follow as Jesus did will step back. It's because they don't want to, to suffer, and thus because they want to embrace sin. And if you don't embrace sin, then it will follow, like Jesus, that you will suffer. And that's what the end of verse 1 is saying. Whoever suffers in the body... They suffer because they are done with sin. For us to suffer in the body is to suffer in this life for turning away from the passing pleasures of sin and the acceptance that comes with it from the world 
and rather to embrace the suffering and the scorn that comes from living a godly life in the presence and under the watchful eye of unbelievers. To cease from sin is to choose not to sin for the sake of Christ and to embrace the suffering that comes with that. When we endure unjust suffering without turning back to sin, we show that we're willing to be done with sin, and we desire to be done with sin. And so Peter here is presenting a choice. You can sin and thus avoid suffering, the scorn and the mockery of others, or worse. Or you can embrace suffering and stop sinning. Peter further describes this choice as living the rest of your life not for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He says in verse number 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now notice, you cannot... In both verse one and in verse one and in verse two, you can't fulfill both the lust of humanity, and that doesn't just mean sexual, it just means the desires of humanity that are contrary to the glory of God. You can't fulfill both the the desires of sinful humanity and the will of God. You must choose one or the other. The passage that I quoted for you earlier regarding Jesus and how he approached this from Hebrews chapter twelve. Wherefore, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But notice that last phrase, scorning its shame. So, Jesus is scorned by the world, but Jesus scorns their scorn. I mean, look at that phrase, scorning the shame. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, if one scorns a thing, one normally has nothing to do with it. But scorning a shame means rather that Jesus thought so little of the pain and shame involved that he did not bother to avoid it, he endured it. William Barclay says this, scorning a shame means despising the shame, despise the world, despise the fact that we are despised. Because as we saw last week, we are on the winning side, ultimately. And so Christ-like character is our objective. That means embracing the suffering that comes with pursuing righteousness. And inevitably it will, and you have to choose one or the other. And Am I going to be on comfortable terms with the world? Or am I going to be pursuing Christ-like character and then taking what comes with that, as did he? And then I say in your outline as well, from verse 2, Christ's words are our orders. Verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. They who? The people at the end of verse 1, who are willing to suffer as they pursue righteousness. And as a result of that, because of that, they do not live their lives. We do not live our lives now as those who belong to Jesus for what the NIV says are evil human desires. Now, the word evil is not actually in the manuscripts. It's been added by the translators. It simply says desires. And so I point that out because it doesn't have to be a desire for something sinful in itself for it to be wrong. Any desire that does not flow from intention to bring glory to God is evil. Since... That is what we were created for, is it not? 
the glory of God. And does not the Word of God say, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so any desire, whether for something illicit or otherwise, that is not done intentionally for the glory of God, is evil. And so rather than pursuing our desires, verse 2 says, we pursue the will of God. And where do we get the will of God? God's desires from His Word, from Scripture. And we're told throughout Scripture, things like chapter 1 and verse 14 of 1 Peter, that the will of God is for us to be holy as He is holy. Or as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. You want to know what God's will is? I mean, there's a verse that goes, it's God's will. Here. (laughs) You want to know God's will for your life? There it is in a sentence. That you should be sanctified. Now, what does that mean, sanctified? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 quotes the Old Testament book of Leviticus saying, Be holy as, as I am holy, says the Lord. And now in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told it's God's will that you be sanctified. And that word sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. So you could translate that verse. It is God's will that you be continually made holy, continually set apart from the value system and the allegiances of the world. And how do I do that? Well, Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, as he prayed to the Father, He said this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So when verse number two says that we don't pursue desires that are not intentionally centered on the, the glory of God, but rather for the will of God, it means that we order our lives according to the values contained in the word of God. And so one commentator has said, His will is our law. His word is our rule. His son's life, our example. His spirit, rather than our own soul, the guide of our actions. And so as foreigners, exiles, aliens living in a foreign land that has with it, in the nature of the case, living in a fallen world, sometimes hostility, we have to prepare ourselves for battle. But we also not only need to prepare ourselves for battle, but this passage is telling us in verses 3 through 6, we have to be provoked for battle. Prepared for spiritual battle, but then provoked to engage in spiritual battle. Now, why do I say this? Verse 3 begins this way. For you have spent enough time. So verses 1 and 2 are saying... Because Jesus endured hostility and engaged in spiritual battle, then you, his followers, need to prepare yourselves for that. And now here is the provocation, the motivation for you to engage in that for, because. And now the next four verses are going to supply that motivation, that provocation. When it starts with the word for, it's saying why we should do this. What should motivate or provoke us to live in this particular way? And verse 3 says, you'll be provoked, you'll be motivated when you consider your past sin. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. 
When it says you have spent enough time, everybody here has spent unequal amounts of time. Right? I mean, some of us came to Jesus when we were children. Some as adults. Some this year. So we've, in, we've engaged in what the pagans do for unequal amounts of time. And whatever period of time we've engaged in what the pagans do is more than enough. Too much, as a matter of fact. It's not saying, all right, you've had enough fun now. <laughs> now it's time to eat your Wheaties, eat your broccoli. It's time to buckle down, do your homework. Whatever amount of time we have spent in pursuing what the pagans spend, spend their time doing is too much, says Peter. And he lists five sins. And they're all sins connected closely with self-control. And they're not unique to the time of the first century. Notice verse 3. This is what the pagans choose to do, live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Three of these five terms are closely connected with sexuality, two with alcohol. Then, as now, alcohol, sex, and parties go closely together. Debauchery is the first in the list, or sensuality. It's a lack of restraint. Same word is used in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19 as that which leads to callousness and every kind of impurity. It brings apathy and hardness about the things of God. People just stop caring. You say, well, you know, that's not, that's not a Christian. I agree. But it is a lot of professing Christians. And I ask you, how do you indulge your time? Um, every now and then, um, I'm on my wife's Facebook account. And I see what's out on Facebook. And I see what people are indulging and reveling in. People who profess Jesus. And I say, Lord, help us. How will we be prepared for the day of battle? If in a day of relative ease, we cannot live for you. Debauchery, first in the list. Lusts, it's associated with sex, though it can be seen in any kind of intense desire for anyone or anything. Drunkenness is just what it sounds like. How do you know, I ask you, when you choose to drink alcohol? How do you know if you're going to be, become drunk? You say, well, because I know I can handle it. How do you know you can handle it? Well, because I've tested it a number of times. Well, how did you know you could handle it before you tested it? A number of times. Because you know there are people who can't. There are people whose lives have been ruined. And I stand as testimony to one who has seen the devastation, not only in my extended family, but have seen it in my pastoral ministry over and over again. Orgies. Or crass indulgence. It was used in secular literature at the time of the Bible for festivals, things similar to a Mardi Gras, not a place where one goes for spiritual encouragement. You know, look, uh, if I, I've never been to this place. I never intend to go, but maybe there's stuff Christians can just enjoy and revel in in Las Vegas. But I don't know what it is. 
And I'm simply saying that, friends, to say to you, choose carefully where you go and what you do. The Bible warns against indulging in the kinds of activities that the world engages in. We need a robust definition of worldliness. And I have tried long and hard in teaching here to give an accurate biblical definition of what worldliness is. It's fallen values expressed in the culture. And I understand that worldliness has been abused, especially in fundamentalist kinds of churches, as a list of these are the things you do and you don't do. I get that. But in response to that, what we have said is, I don't want to hear about worldliness. We don't need to talk about worldliness. Well, the Bible talks a lot about it. And as representatives of Jesus, we don't engage in it. Which means we have to know what it is and then in turn avoid it for the sake of the testimony of Jesus. And then verse 3 says, carousing. Drinking parties. Again, it's just like what it sounds, drinking parties. So that means you don't go to drinking parties. Okay? Any questions? That's what God's Word says. And then detestable idolatry, end of of verse 3. Things that are disgusting to God. It may have at the time referred to religious festivals, but there are plenty of things that are an abomination to our God listed in Scripture. And I would just say to you, friends, a lot of them are on TV and free. But we get lulled into thinking, well, if it's on TV, it can't be that bad. Are you kidding me? We're going to let the world and the culture decide for us what's good spiritual diet for Christian people? All of these activities are the kinds of things that would have gone on in the first century for the people to whom Peter was writing at family functions, at trade guild meetings like work parties, civic holidays, for us things like New Year's, Memorial Day, and the like. These parties were places people would have gone to seek satisfaction in a number of different ways. And These believers to whom Peter was writing would have participated in these kinds of activities before their conversion. And their refusal to participate now could bring alienation from their family and friends, particularly when they're accustomed to them going and doing those things with them. It's the same kind of thing we find ourselves in, isn't it? Now, I want you to notice in your outline, I say we should consider our past sin. Not, I didn't say our our past sins. Now, it is true that Peter here lists a number of representative kinds of sins that may be in one's past. But the reason I've said sin is as the general term that covers the indwelling principle within us even after we come to Jesus that tempts us and draws us away from the intentional pursuit of the glory of God. And I've done it that way because some of us, as I said earlier, have come to Jesus at different times, maybe very young. Maybe we never had opportunity to engage in these kinds of things. But please understand that sin is ever-present with you. And you cannot, you cannot indulge the flesh. You cannot indulge the sin nature. Whether these kinds of things are in your past or not, you cannot dabble in those kinds of things. Some may have a memory of past sins, depending on the kind of life that they've led before they came to Jesus. At our men's retreat two weekends ago, during one of our breakout sessions and discussion times, 
one of the brothers from one of the other participating churches that led a discussion time that I was in gave his testimony. He said he was saved at the age of 27 as an adult. And prior to coming to Christ, he said he indulged in all kinds of debauchery. And to this day, and he's probably estimated in his 60s, to this day, he says, I'm tormented thinking about the things that I engaged in. And I cannot allow myself to have, be around triggers, to be around things that, that bring to mind the past life. But if we were saved early and thus not in the world, we may not have a memory of past sins, but we should all have an understanding of sin in its position and in its effects and understand that we must, we must be careful in that which, in which we engage. We consider our past sin. Verse 4 tells us, we consider our present opposition. They, there's the they word again, they are surprised that you do not join them in the reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. I quoted Jesus from John chapter 15 earlier. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. But Jesus went on to say this, you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world and that's why the world hates you. You see, the reason it hated me, Jesus, is because I don't belong to the world and the reason it hates you is because you don't belong to the world and the reason you don't belong to the world is because I have called you out of it. And in verse 4, when it says, they heap abuse on you, the word, the, the Greek word that's translated heap abuse is the word from which we get blaspheme. They blaspheme and slander you, and in turn, the God you serve. And for an unbeliever, see, you've got to get this. An unbeliever does not understand the mindset of the follower of the Lord Jesus. They think that the only way you can have fun is the way they have fun. They've never been to any of our fellowships. And I mean that. Some of you know Brother Bob Pittman. Bob is living down in, where is Bob living? Is he in Florida? North Carolina? Okay. But he and uh, Suzette moved away a few years ago, but they were with us in our church for, for several years. And Bob's testimony is he was saved as an adult, and he just called himself a fall-down drunk before he came to Jesus. And it caused him difficulty in his marriage. This is his public testimony in his marriage, in his work. And Bob, I remember him saying more than once, I had no idea that you could have fun apart from alcohol. And there are many people who think that. And the reason verse 4 says what it does is because good, godly, righteous people can bring out the worst in pagans. That's what happened when Jesus walked the earth. As I said earlier, it's not because they were particularly bad people. It was because he was an exceptionally righteous person, the God-man. And good and godly and righteous people can elicit, bring out the worst in sinful people. As long as you're doing the same thing, as long as you're going along to get along, everything's good. It's until there's a difference that causes a conviction that places a judgment even without saying it. 
You don't have to say a word, but by your refusal to participate, you're saying there's something wrong with this. What? Something wrong with what we're doing? Something wrong with what perhaps you used to engage in? And now you're all holier than thou? We consider our past sin and the present opposition. And then lastly, we consider our future vindication as we're motivated, provoked to spiritual battle. Verses 5 and 6. But they who heap abuse on you will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now what is, what is that about? <laughs> First, understand that God is going to judge unbelievers. And so in whatever abuse you undergo, and whatever difficulty and hostility is heaped upon you, understand vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So that's what verse 5 is, is telling us. And then verse, verse 6 is, is telling us that contrary to what the pagans were saying in Peter's day, which is, if this gospel is so great, why do your people die just like our people? I mean, we all come to the same fate. We all die. So how is what you believe and what you're pursuing any better than what we're doing? Why not eat, drink, and be merry if we're all going to die? And what verse 6 is saying is this. They only have a limited perspective. Yes, they see that we all die in the body, but what they fail to see is that Christians live according to God in regard to the Spirit that even those, beginning of verse 6, who are now dead, had the gospel preached to them so that spiritually they were made alive. And that even though they are now dead physically, they're alive spiritually. And their bodies will one day be raised as Jesus' body was raised. And so we consider our future vindication as we are motivated, provoked to live as Christians in an often hostile environment. And so I say as your take-home truth, we should understand and embrace the spiritual battle to which we've been drafted. Understand it and embrace it. And if you say, I want to embrace the world, I want to embrace sin, I want to embrace the pleasures of sin for a season, if you say that, then you are not somebody who is done with sin at the end of verse 2. We're going to close in just a moment. But I will tell you one of my great burdens as just an observer of the Christian landscape, not just our church, just the Christian landscape in America, is that we are raising a generation of Christians who are not prepared to do battle. We are not prepared to do battle because we have preached a feel-good message. God wants you healthy and He wants you wealthy. It's all happy talk. It's all Joel Osteen motivational speeches. Friends, God gives me 15, 20 years more. When I'm gone... 
if, if some people in this room and people we haven't met yet could say, our church prepared me to live for Jesus. Our church prepared me for the day of battle. I was taught how to stand up for Jesus. I was taught what it means to suffer for Christ. I was taught what it meant to take a stand for righteousness. If, if some in this room could say that, if we could pass that baton on to the next generation, and especially now because I fear, and I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I fear, we are going to be entering a time toward the end of my sojourn in which it's going to be costly to be a Christian. And you're going to see people who populate churches running for the weeds because they didn't sign up for this. And I'm trying to tell you as faithfully as I can, when you were born again into God's family, you were drafted into God's army. Let's bow together and ask him to help us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our Lord and our Savior. We acknowledge you as very God of very God. You are fully God, but you became man for our sakes. Though you were rich for our sakes, you became poor. You condescended to become man so that you could die for man. We thank you for dying as our substitute. And Lord, you have shown us in your word what that meant. The scorn, the ridicule, the abuse of God, the almighty maker, submitted himself to the hands of men and their abuse for a greater glory. Lord, you then are our, not only our substitute, but you're our example as well. And if they've hated you, they will hate us. And they will because they have not been transformed as you and your grace have transformed us in our outlook, the way we see God, the way we see ourselves and, 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 and others and your world. And as a result, they, and in their ignorance and in their sin and in their indulgence, do what comes naturally. Well, Lord, we don't hate them. You have called us to love as you have loved. Love your enemies. But they hated you and they will, you have told us, hate us. So help us to be people then who embrace, not eschew, not, 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 not tone down what holiness looks like in order to be on easy terms with the world. Help us to be a people who uphold your standard, who uphold your name, who have integrity, that backs up the message that we preach. I pray that there are people in this room right now who are convicted by your spirit of the indulgence that they've allowed to slip into their lives. Help us, Lord, to examine ourselves as you bid us in your word to see if indeed we are living lives that are consistent with the calling that you have given us. Lord, we as genuine Christians want to honor you with our lips, and with our very lives, and even in our death. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be strong in the Lord, as the great apostle told his protege, Timothy. Help us, Lord, to stand, having the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the full armor of God for the day of battle. Lord, we love you. Because you have first loved us.
Help us to demonstrate our love for you more than our love for the world in our allegiances and our priorities and our values. Help this place, this people, to be a church of people who are fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And for his glory, amen.